uh, outcome of having this site, some federal agencies require people to use this in their contracts. It says you need to follow diatoms.org. Welcome to the Soul Space Podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, with me today is Sarah Spaulding from the University of Colorado. Um, Sarah, you were a client of ours two years ago. You still are. We're doing some maintenance and stuff on your sites, but we built a, a, a new site for you to replace something that you had there before. We'll get into that in a minute, but I, I just wanted to... Um, Get a little bit of backstory on on who you are and what your what your day job is and what the side hustles are and all that all that kind of stuff. So maybe you could say a little bit about about your work there at the university. Sure. So my name is Sarah Spaulding, and I'm a research affiliate at the at INSTAR, which is the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado Boulder. My area of expertise is working on the ecology and taxonomy of diatoms, specifically freshwater diatoms. So this is a super obscure area of work that I that I study algae and these particular kind of algae called diatoms. They live nearly everywhere that there's water, whether it's, it's not that obscure because my wife does the same thing. <laughs> that's that's you true. Know. You know all about this. It's <laughs> so you not may feel obscure to you. <laughs> you may feel all alone in the world, like you're the only one doing it. But there's right. there's so many scientists like you that I meet. Of course, I'm out here in, in the Monterey Bay area, so there's tons of scientists studying that at the ocean level. But anyway, I didn't want you to feel all alone all of a sudden. Well, so go I, ahead with, I appreciate, with what you're saying. I appreciate that, Mitchell, because it's always a treat when I run into someone that knows a lot about diatoms too. So that's, that's great. And that is actually part of my mission with this website is that I want people to know about diatoms. So that's why you hired us. We came in and we, um, we helped you take, um, you had a, uh, you have a directory of North American diatoms. And what that means is that your, your subset of the diatoms on planet earth are uh, constrained to the continental uh, United States. Is that accurate or is it broader than that? Right. Well, no, actually, we we built this as being the flora of North America. And right now it, it is a it's a, a guide to what species there are in lakes and rivers and streams. And it is a to help people be able to identify them. And since launching this site, though, we, I've had a lot of people contact me and say, Hey, why aren't you including marine diatoms? You know, they're part of North America too. Yeah. <laughs> and you really ought to expand it. And 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 so I'm wading my feet into doing that. Um, I actually have that on one of our little to-do lists on Basecamp is how would we expand this to a, a different ecological um, realm. And and one of the things that we've paid attention to the entire way is how do we make a resource that really delivers to the people, we call them practitioners, of what they need, the information that they need, without destroying the experience of some other portion of our users. So, um, and, and so that's something that we have really tried to do with 
the way it's structured and that we think about a lot in making this a a site that is useful to people, you know, sort of as a tool. So you have a segmentation of the types of user groups that are that are accessing the tool. Um, so the, the website we're talking about is diatoms.org, by the way, and that's the domain name that it acquired when we relaunched. <clears throat> the previous site that you had was uh, at a at a subdomain of the university, if I remember right. Um, and I, I think that website was running on Expression Engine. Is that, do I have that part right? Yes, it was. And it was quite an old version of Expression Engine. We were running up against the, the boundaries of its life. Yeah. Well, you know, at, at this stage, on the tail end of that, there's a lot to complain about. But when you initially launched that, it solved a lot of problems that you would have had a much more difficult time building for prior to that. And that was a different developer who built that site. Um, and you're now in Craft, Craft CMS, which is one of the things that my company uh, specializes in. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> okay, so we we jumped into the website and we haven't gotten the full backstory on you yet. You yet. I was Googling you this morning because it's 2020. You can do that. And there's... <laughs> <laughs> there's really there's really no image of you on the internet that where you're not hanging off the side of some rock somewhere in Colorado as far as I can tell um, <laughs> so so uh, yeah um, is that a regular thing for you rock climbing or um, is that an occasional deal is that a big hobby oh it's worse than <laughs> hobby it's it's been an, an addiction for, <laughs> for more than 35 years and I and I that was one of the things that was that I had to kind of wrestle with in my professional life because I felt like, oh man, I, you know, I just really, climbing is a big part of my life and it means a lot to me. And what my uh, advisor, when I was working on my master's degree said, you know, if you think you're going to get a doctorate, you have to put the ropes away. Oh, please. Yeah, I know. And, and And I walked out of his office and it was like, I'm getting another advisor. This is not. <laughs> I fired him. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of academics in that situation would not have done that. Um, and and it's you know to their discredit. But you, you need to make that move really quickly. You need the the advocacy of an advisor who's got your back. I mean, my wife in the very same kind of a situation. The analog would have been, well, you just have to put your kids away if you're going to have be on a PhD track. They just have to not exist. I know it's um, it's not right. So you're you're um, this is something we talked about when we met in person. Um, that was, you know, that was prior to starting the project and even prior to you guys deciding to hire us to to get to work on it. And one of the things we talked about was was women in science. And my wife has come up against um, some of the some of the barriers uh, to women um, really progressing to the upper levels of the scientific community and, and, and research and so forth. Things are getting better. There's, there's more women in science. There's more women groups about uh, be, being a scientist. Uh, and and there's, there's sort of more help and more advocacy there. Um, but my wife and I talk on a regular basis about how it just could have gone so much differently. 10 years ago mm-hmm. and when she started there there would have been more support so when you changed advisors and you found an advisor who was going to support the fact that you have a life and you have outside interests um how how did that change things how did that help oh it it helped immensely because i because i this was something that i need to do although i still i, I 
you know, when you're talking about women's science, I, you know, I've just, I'm almost 60 right now. So I've entered this field when things were really very different. But even having a new advisor, I would not share that I was a rock climber. I did, yeah. I did not talk about it in my professional life. I, I didn't bring it up. And, you know, it was really a, you know, segmenting of, of lives that I think women have had to do. And, um, and I, and I'm really glad that that's changing now, that it's a different world than it was 20 and 30 years ago. It has such a long way to go. I mean, academia seems to be so far behind the, some of those advancements in other parts of, uh, parts of the economy and parts of, uh, I don't know, just the, the, the professional experience of, of women out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I just want to give, give you a quick props for the work that you're doing to, to make a change in that, in that regard. <clears throat> so we're, so we're studying, uh, diatoms and, um, at the same time, you're a rock climber. Before we hit record on this, you were telling me about, did you call it, um, skate skiing, ski skating, which was that? Yeah. Skate skiing. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was telling you that that uh, I was out this morning um, before I came into work to go skate skiing at our local area. It's about <coughs> half an hour away, and um, you know maybe this is just a part of you know kind of extension of rock climbing of just having some an activity that is really different and really allows me to be in nature and clear <coughs> my mind. And then when I come to do science or work on a website, I can be present and devote my energy to it. And at least for me, that's what I feel like I, I need to do. That's something I think about a lot these days, especially with my own team. Um, years ago, I, I learned that exact phenomenon. I learned, of course, in, in my field, the thing that you get stuck on or that you have to really get a lot of brain power to, to resolve is problems at the code level, like getting getting logic right, getting um, getting a system architected correctly, getting through some sort of a technical challenge that you have to resolve on a, on a web development project. And a number of years ago, I, was, I learned that sitting at the desk and kind of grinding away at it didn't do the job, not nearly as well as getting out, um, changing the track in your head, for me, going swimming—that's my thing. Um, for you, rock climbing, maybe maybe skiing, whatever the case may be. But getting out uh, and it's sort of disconnecting from the problem, just knowing that it's still in the subconscious, brewing and working. Yeah. You come back to it, and, and the solution seems to arrive when you show up back at your desk. So, for those people who don't who don't get that, so the bosses of employees who don't understand that, um, the advisors of PhD candidates who don't appreciate that. Um, there's just a lot of friction against that that general concept, and it's to their detriment. I there is are so many times when I yeah like bump my head up against a wall and and then leave and do something else, go skiing or go rock climbing, and I solve the problem. Yeah. And and I share that with my uh, graduate students and say, you know, why don't you get out of here, go do something else, and and they. <laughs> I think they're so ingrained with that idea yeah. that you you flog yourself to solve a problem that they they're having to unlearn that. Um, yeah. And and they you know they they kind of laugh and they 
they call me the easiest advisor ever. (laughs) Well, (laughs) maybe, but maybe not because you still, you know, you better do things that are, that are, you know, really insightful and right. And, and, you know, enjoy your, if you don't, if you're not enjoying your life, you're not going to be able to do things that are really insightful in life and, and right. I'm glad you're teaching that. Mm. The earlier people can learn that lesson, the better off mm-hmm. they'll be. I mean, the happier their life will be and the better their work will be. Yeah. The, um, yeah. The more you can contribute if, if it comes from a place of, you know, really being engaged. The release is, is the key. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that engagement and then you release mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and sort of let, um, let the solution flow in. Um, exactly. The people listening right now are probably wondering, why is Mitchell asking so many questions that have nothing to do with web development or <laughs> um, agency work? And the answer to that question is um, that as a business person, um, I, I make one of the fatal mistakes, one of the, um, the prohibited things you're not supposed to do in business one of the things I love about my job is that I get to meet so many different kinds of people and do work for them of the expertise that we have, but um, kind of enter their world and learn more about what it is to be them. Um, working for a scientist like yourself is a great example. Like there's, we don't have any other scientists as clients. Um, so it's, it's really cool to be able to make that connection and learn what your life is like, what the parallels are between our, our two worlds. Um, early on when I started my company, 19 years ago, I probably had these guys as clients. It was a Buddhist monastery in Northern California. And so I got to go on retreat with them for two or three days just to kind of get a feel for what it was like. And I guess that's when I got the bug of, you're not supposed to have clients from all over different industries um, because it's harder to market yourself and harder to get a name and and develop a brand. But on the other hand, um, that's just one of the, the great experiences that make life feel deep. Mm-hmm. Um, that you, you get to have conversations with so many different kinds of people. Um, of course, that parallel that you and I have, that common ground that we have where my wife's a scientist studying something very similar to you. In, in her field, she studies um, uh, phytoplankton, uh, so at the, at the marine level. And in her area of expertise is um, she, she's interested in uh, harmful algal blooms. And so she she is drawn to the science behind why are these phytoplankton um, uh, overpopulating and uh, blooming in under what conditions? And of course, she's a scientist, so she will she'll make me read between the lines. And the answer for for her is, you know, fertilizer runoff um, is contributing to to the problem. It's at least in the oceans. Uh, do you study anything in? Um, that's compatible with that, you know, in parallel with that, with the work that you're doing with your diatoms? Yeah, I do. And in fact, I'd love to talk to your wife sometime about her work on harmful algal blooms. Um, I think it's very much connected to what we're doing on rivers across the country, which is looking at the health of rivers and the diatoms within them because we are using them as markers of the amount of nutrients that are coming in. And uh, as those nutrient levels change, the species composition of diatoms change. And so we can have um, an integrated record of the health of a system. And really this problem of nutrient runoff across the entire continent is immense. And 
because I'm sure your wife is, you know, figuring this out, the impact in, in uh, nearshore environments is really something that's, that's affecting the health of, of many organisms and, and humans too. So, and, and these things, you know, these things that we study that people cannot see, but, but uh, are responding to uh, factors like um, the amount of runoff, um, the amount of uh, uh, water that comes down as snow in the winter, um, the types of nutrients that we put on our agricultural fields, and um, changes in climate as as flow and temperatures as flow decreases and temperature increases, we, we are having more of these blooms. So it's really a entire continental, it's an entire global issue with these microorganisms that you, that we can't, that most people can't see. And, um, and I think it's really important that people have awareness of, of them and, and trying to, it's hard to make people aware of things that they can't see. Um, but you can see these blooms. <laughs> you can see these. You can see these blooms, and and people yeah. are very aware of the blooms, and um, and there are both diatom blooms, and and there are um, blue green algal blooms, and there are dinoflagellate blooms. There are all kinds of blooms that go on that algae are getting uh, too many nutrients and and just going nuts with that, and it has impacts on um, every other part of the aquatic system. My wife looks at me funny whenever I bring home some mussels to, to make for dinner. Um, and I, you, know, you, you go to Whole Foods and you buy some mussels and they're farmed from, uh, from up in Canada. If I harvested mussels around here in the Monterey Bay, uh, they would be, um, they'd be problematic. As a matter of fact, one of the things that she does in her lab her, her lab is um, part of some ongoing uh, data collection experiments. They're uh, multi years in length. One of the things they do is they co- go collect mussels from the coast, bring them to the lab, throw them in a blender, grind them up, and then do uh, do counts of different toxins and, uh, and and that sort of thing. As a consequence, she won't get anywhere near the, sh- the shellfish that I like to eat so much. Um, but the the reason I bring that up is. You're saying, well, these things are invisible. You can't see them. You you can't make a connection to, to what's happening. Um, we in our family we have a client change skeptic, and every time he comes to visit, we try to chip away a little bit uh, because he'll he'll say back to her what he heard on Fox News, and she'll he'll she'll say back to him, well, I just spent the weekend looking at thirty years of data that are that's making it pretty clear to me that there's an issue. I mean, I'm looking at a spreadsheet with numbers where you just graph it. You know, what What do you want me to do when I see the facts right in front of me? So we, we have that issue too. And um, now that's, you know, that's one thing that happens in my house is because of her, I have access to that, this raw data that makes things a lot more obvious. Um, it, it's just harder to get people to recognize that, just like you said, that thing that's invisible. So on diatoms.org, you have a resource uh, for different practitioners. L- let's talk about those different audience groups, the, the different types of people who use that site. I mean, there are definitely going to be uh, academics on there who are using that as a directory for, for working with their students. Um, 
who, who are those people and what use are they making of that website? So those people are um, academics or consultants or graduate students, and they're somehow using diatoms in, in their work. And uh, they, they are working at a microscope, so they have collected samples from a lake or a river or a, um, one of the neat things that we can do with diatoms is look back in time. So taking a sediment core and looking how a, a particular environment has changed over time. And so there, we, we made this resource that would be directed at those specialists that need to make a species identification um, quickly without having to go to a whole library of books and to make it accurately by being aware of what else is out there and what they might need to consider. We found that, um, well, what what's, tends to happen is if you give someone a book and they're making an identification, they'll say, well, it must be in this book. So this one is the closest thing. So that's it. <laughs> and, and that was that was one of the, the things that we wanted to uh, change with this website from its previous versions because we knew that people would see it used to be called uh, diatoms of the United States and we knew that people would say oh that this must have everything in there and so for this project we we called it the missing species problem which is we were explicit that we're going to tell everybody what they were missing. You know, we might not be able to show all the diatoms of North America because it's this is still a multi-decade project, but we can say um, there's some other ones out here. Here they are, and um, and so we're we're really directed at those people that need to to do this as their day-to-day -day work. And um, really, I haven't, yeah, I haven't told you this, Mitchell, as an outcome of having this site, um, now uh, some federal agencies, the EPA and USGS, and also a, um, a National Science Foundation network called NEON, the National Ecological Observatory Network, require people to use this at this Whoa. <laughs> as in in their um, in their contracts it says you need to follow diatoms.org so <laughs> that was that's something that um, is a really great outcome that's really cool I'm, I'm really happy about that yeah yeah and and so um, that 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 um, we have this you know, and I think that's sort of unusual in the in anything sort of internet. You know, we're not trying to sell anything. We're trying to um, help people do their work, and um, and so it's really satisfying that way that this is direct towards that end. I think, and and those kinds of users, those people come back like they're on every day. You can. I can tell by looking at Google Analytics that you know there's people that come back. They're spending, um, you know, for websites having you know long periods of time, like ten minutes on a page is 
is really huge. So you know that these certain people are studying it. Um, But I would say our greatest numbers of users are actually people that are, are Googling like, what is a what is a diatom and and we we knew that going in that there was a audience of of people that we could inform like the lay public and students and so we were really intentional about having a section that is what are diatoms and um so that people can who know nothing about it could kind of find their way in and start out um, very general and we try to lead them down a path that they get deeper and deeper and can and ask questions about climate and um, so we're we're trying to uh, to reach um, you know those people that are the very experts and then we're trying to reach the general public that doesn't know what these things are and then we have parts of this is that are directed at the people that are in between, you know, like maybe um, students, you know, elementary students or high school students that are, um, you know, that can wade in a little further. And yeah, so I'm really um, happy about that, that we, I think, are effectively reaching those different audiences. You've been listening to the Soul Space Podcast. 